Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. I'm delighted to be joined today by Nicole Black, legal technology evangelist at My Case. Nikki describes her role, in case you were wondering, as a bridge between technology and the practice of law. On the My Case side of the bridge, she represents the lawyer point of view and shares insights and industry knowledge with My Case's tech and marketing teams. As an aside, I should note that following our recording of this episode, My Case announced its acquisition by AffiniPay. We did not get into that because of the timing. Now back to her job. On the attorney side, she educates lawyers on using technology to streamline their law firms, increase efficiencies, and provide better client representation. In addition to her day job, she has written and co-authored three books, including Cloud Computing for Lawyers. She also writes regular legal tech columns and frequently speaks at legal conferences across the country. We talked about why she considers the work she did as an intern her most significant legal work how her history in small and solo firms set her up for success as a legal technology evangelist, the biggest challenges faced by small firm and solo practitioners, and what excites her the most about the near-term and longer-term changes in the legal technology. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Thanks for listening. Nikki, thank you so much for joining with us today. My pleasure. Looking forward to it. Yeah, as do I. You've written a lot about legal technology. You've written a lot about the change imperative for the use of technology in the profession, spoken quite a bit on it. What is a legal tech evangelist? What is that job? Well, I've been with my case for a decade, and that has been my job title for most of that time. And although my functions have changed over time, I would suggest that the heart of the job is educating lawyers about technology and explaining to them why it will benefit their practice and that education is, I guess it's being the bridge between the technologists and the lawyers, both internally and externally. So externally, it's the education component with lawyers, which is speaking and writing about the intersection of law and technology and explaining how lawyers can use technology in their practices. And then internally, it's providing the lawyer perspective and the lawyer voice to the different teams across my case in different contexts, whether it's messaging, whether it's understanding how different law practice areas work and their specific needs, or understanding how lawyers approach technology technology and ways to reach them in that way as well. Sounds like a fascinating job. Let's talk a little bit about the journey that got you there. So you come out of school with a psychology religion, undergraduate, and you decide to go to law school. Well, I think I had known, I knew for a long time that I wanted to go to law school. I just wrote a column for Above the Law about my mentor who um, recently died. It was my most recent column there. And he was part of the inspiration for my wanting to become a lawyer in the first place. And I explained in that article that when I was growing up, my parents were medical professionals. And so their conversations at the table were decidedly dry or gross. It was one extreme or the other. They were never all that interesting. And (laughs) Ed's, you know, stories were, I mean, he was a fantastic storyteller. He was a criminal defense lawyer. And, you know, he would just tell these fantastic stories, whether he was in front of a jury, whether he was at the dinner table with friends. He just had all these stories to tell and they were so interesting. And so I always thought what he did seemed a lot more interesting than what my my parents were doing. And I also hated math and science. I think that's a path that takes a lot of people to the practice of law. So I think I knew even in high school because I used to go to Ed's office sometimes and shadow him and I like shadowed him for a day or two as well. So I already knew kind of what it was like to practice law and then sort of knew that's what I was going to do throughout 
college. And so I ended up with a religion and psychology major because those happened to be the courses I just randomly chose. And when you cross-referenced them, I basically had fulfilled the religion major accidentally. It was the study of the phenomenon of religion and psychology. I also just enjoyed those courses. So I just kind of majored in whatever I was interested in. And you can do that with law school. And then I applied to law school. And it was your mentor's influence, I presume, that led you to the uh, public defender's office? A lot of it because when I was in college, Ed got me an internship with the U.S. attorneys. So I did a lot of research there with the law students that were interning there that summer. And then in law school, I second shared a federal civil rights trial with him. And it was a pro bono case he'd taken on behalf of a prisoner who had um, deliberate medical and it was a deliberate medical indifference case that they had ignored his medical needs and caused him significant harm. And so I second shared that and was involved in the preparation and second shared the whole trial. And I even noticed an error in the jury instruction and Ed objected on that basis. And it ended up being the grounds for a successful appeal. So, you know, Ed was very inspirational and he really helped me along in terms of understanding what it meant to practice law. And then I decided to move back to Rochester after law school. I went to undergrad here in Rochester, grew up in Syracuse, went to Albany Law School, so just all upstate New York. And I came back here and it was actually my cousin who was an attorney in town, who was another mentor of mine, who helped me in terms of making connections at the PD's office. I interned there for a year before I was hired because the job market was very challenging in 1995. So there was no turnover. So I got hired there after about a year and I did appeals at the time. You did appeals for the public defender's office? As an intern. And I actually, that was probably one of the most significant things I've ever done in my whole legal career was I wrote an appeal when I was an intern that was successful and a murder conviction was overturned and he was released from prison and they re-indicted him and to a lower, a lesser charge to manslaughter. And he pled to that and got time served. So that was probably, quite frankly, the most significant thing I did my entire legal career was something I'd done as an intern. <laughs> so. Uh, that's amazing. I've got a daughter who was a public defender and, and did capital defense cases. Those are tough. And so that'll that'll resonate with her for sure. What did you learn? You then went to civil litigation and you, you practiced law for a number of years. What did you learn in the practice that you apply in your role today as evangelist? Well, I learned a lot because I was at the PDs for four years. Then I was with a civil litigation firm for nearly another four years. I also continued to do criminal work while I was there, but that was a firm of about 20 attorneys plus staff. And then I've also been of counsel to a DWI defense firm that had about six attorneys and staff. And then I also hung my own shingle for a bit doing contract work for other attorneys. So I was technically a solo. So I've worked in a number of different offices and contexts. And the solo and small market is the market that I've always been most familiar talking to. And also, it's the sweet spot for my case and a lot of the other people, technology companies in our space. Um, You know, there's either big law, and then there's everything else. And we sort of handle the everything else. And having the experience of working in those different size firms, I understand how they function. I understand the different roles of employees and attorneys. I understand the needs of those different size firms. And I also understand how lawyers think, how to talk to them in a language that they understand and how to reach them when you're trying to talk about tech. What are the challenges you face in terms of trying to get people to adopt technology? What are what are the barriers that you have to overcome? Well, lawyers are, I believe, we're unique. I think we we all like to think we're unique. unique. We're a little egotistical as a group as a whole, but I do think lawyers are unique. They precedent, you know, they are precedent based, you know, everything that we do, we look back to see what 
uh, has been done and said before. So lawyers do tend to respect precedent and they also risk averse. You know, we kind of, that's our job. We're risk averse. We advise our clients of all the horrible things that can possibly go wrong and try to protect them from all of those eventualities. And we also are very analytical and we like to think we're not emotional decision makers. I think that most lawyers ultimately at the end of the day kind of are, but don't realize that they are. But all of those things make it difficult to convince lawyers to change. They're risk averse, they're precedent you know, they always look backwards and they are um, analytical. So you have to make a good case for change and you also have to help them with the change. You know, it's not easy to change. Change management in law firms is difficult. You have to get everyone on board and you have to transfer all the data. And so you want to do what you can to ease that uh, transition as well. You wrote an article a few years ago, I can't remember if it was in the ABA Journal or, or Above the Law, about the barriers, cultural barriers to adoption of technology in law firms, which resonated with me, which made complete sense. How has the pandemic affected the adoption of technology? Has it sped up trends that are already there? Has it created new trends? How have you experienced the impact of the pandemic on this challenge of getting people to adopt technology? Well, it's been really interesting because especially since the pandemic, just seems never ending, right? Like initially, it's absolutely accelerated technology adoption across the board and also in law firms. Certainly, certain categories of technology have been adopted the most. I would say uh, video conferencing, voice over internet protocols, and online document storage. I would say those are the three categories where you've had broad scale adoption out of necessity. You know, you have to have a way to conduct meetings when there's socially distancing or remote workers. You need to, one of the biggest pain points law firms had was the phones when they, everyone had to go remote because they didn't have a physical person in the office to deal with their landline. So VoIP was a natural and pretty simple progression for most of them. And then, um, document between e-filing, which is already happening, and then the need to be able to access documents from anywhere, that online storage part became pretty second nature for lawyers as well. So definitely accelerated all of those categories out of necessity. But I also think that there was already, you know, especially in terms of cloud adoption, which I've been trying to get lawyers to do since like 2008 or so, is initially you had to get over just the trust barrier. Do they trust the technology and security? And, And then you had to get over that change management barrier. And that's a difficult barrier, but the pandemic forced their hand, you know? And so at this point, I think all law firms kind of and lawyers accept that they're going to put everything in the cloud. It's just a matter of getting to that point and being convinced that now is the time to do it. And the fact that this pandemic is continuing and also everyone's getting used to remote work and the firms that are want to remain competitive, especially in large law, are going to have to offer remote work options. So I think that that's all here to stay. It's just a matter of law firms finding the right tools and the timing being right for them to actually make those transitions. Let's talk about the tools a little bit. In one of your articles, you talked about a survey that drew an interesting distinction between the willingness to experiment and use different technologies, AI, robotic process automation, machine learning, et cetera, but the readiness to actually execute and implement those changes. That There's a real difference in, I think it was a Walters Kluwer 2021 study. I assume you've experienced that same sort of disconnect between the stated willingness, but the actual ability to implement technology. Well, for sure. And it's the larger the firm gets in some ways, the more difficult it becomes because the more stakeholders you have, the more stakeholders you have to convince, get on board and have them adopt the technology and be willing to adopt it. But even in smaller firms, if you have an office manager who's been with a firm for 25 years, knows all the skeletons in the closet and also 
is the only one who knows how to run everything. If that person doesn't want to transition to new technology, then guess what? The firm's probably not going to transition to new technology. They hold a lot of power in those smaller firms. And then in larger firms, one of my favorite examples of this is a firm had reached out to me about consulting, but I don't consult. But it was a mid-sized firm that was interested in moving to the cloud. And I said, I'll give you my cloud presentation. At least I can help because I was excited that this regional firm wanted to do that. And so I went and gave my cloud presentation. But what was so interesting was the stakeholders in the room were just on different planets. You know, you had the office manager who was saying, we have no choice. Our premise-based software is moving to the cloud. Like, this isn't an option. We have to move to the cloud. And I think she brought me in there to try to convince them that the cloud was okay. You had the partners on the technology committee who were asking me, should we move to the cloud? Is this ethical? Are there security issues? Then you had the IT people over in the corner with their arms crossed, staring at me like I was the devil incarnate because if the cloud was adopted, their jobs would change completely. And that's the last thing they wanted. They liked what they were doing, you know, maintaining premises-based tech servers and software and their jobs would have changed significantly. And in front of them, one of the partners actually said, so perhaps, you know, we may have to get rid of some of the IT people. And then it would also mean that their jobs would change. So one of them could maybe just maintain the contracts every year, like in front of these IT stakeholders, you know, it was a really strange experience, but everybody was on such different pages when it was pretty clear that they had no other option, but they're all asking different questions. So for that firm, I I don't know whatever happened, but it was just so interesting to see how different the approaches were by the people that were in the room. So who knows how long it took them to even make the decision, let alone get everyone on the same page, train them on the software, implement it and roll it out and get their data up into it too. You know, that can be challenging. That's where the tech company comes in and they need to help you with those things. Yeah, but that it's interesting you gave that example because that dynamic, I've seen it play out myself. That's not an unusual dynamic with people looking at it from the different perspectives. Right. You know, you see that across the board. Larger firms, it just takes longer to make decisions because it's decision by committee. Mid-sized firms, it's a few stakeholders that ultimately make the decision, but then getting everyone on board is difficult. And then smaller firms are much more nimble, but you know they don't have the IT staff in-house to help with it. And making those decisions, it's a big decision. They're busy running their firms, trying to make money, trying to represent their clients. So sometimes it's just difficult for them to even stop and pay attention and make decisions. So they kind of face decision paralysis. Yeah, it must be an interesting dynamic that you encounter all the time in your job. Well, typically when I'm speaking, the people that are attending often are interested in the topic, so they're a little bit more receptive. And when I'm writing, I'm just writing off into the ether. It's kind of a strange experience because my ABA journal articles reach a very large audience and my above the law articles reach a very large audience and even my daily record ones because they go across their national newswire. So I know people read them because I'll get occasional emails. And people will tell me, you know, they've been reading my articles forever and they've really helped them make decisions that I never really hear from them over that course of time that I've been writing. But so when you're writing off and just sending your articles off into the ether, they're receptive or they're not. I don't know it's whoever's reading it. So I often find that I'm talking to more often than not attorneys that are fairly receptive just because they're somehow drawn to whatever it is that I'm the messages that I'm putting out there. I think it's our salespeople and the salespeople of tech companies that are the ones that encounter the most resistance, I would suggest then rather than the people that are doing the evangelism or education. It's an interesting sales cycle, isn't it, in the tech world for lawyers? Yeah. What are the trend lines you see in legal tech coming out of 2021, moving into 2022 and beyond? Well, right now, it's everyone moving into the cloud at different rates and moving different functionalities into the cloud. And whether it's an all-in-one, whether they're going to end up in an all-in-one platform, I mean, the trend is sort of platform across the board. 
no matter what company you talk to or what product they're offering, everyone's moving towards this concept of a platform, whether it's by integrations, actual product offerings and features or acquisitions, you know, they're moving towards. There've been a lot of acquisitions in the space recently, haven't there? Yeah, especially if that has accelerated significantly since the pandemic, because the pandemic has accelerated adoption. So it's created a lot of opportunity in the space for growth and continued growth. And so there have been a lot of acquisitions. That's also just what happens. People that I've spoken to that have been in software and technology for a long time talk about how no matter what the space is, you end up with all sorts of startups and small competitors. And at some point, there's got to be consolidation. So that was already happening before the pandemic. But the pandemic, I think, accelerated that and the investment coming into the space significantly as well. And right now, they don't, it doesn't seem to be, it doesn't look like there's any signs of that slowing down. Although I've also heard people predicting, they're starting to predict both in the legal space and externally that a lot of the venture fund uh, capital and uh, sometimes private equity may start slowing down. But I don't know whether that's true or not. Where do the venture funds and PE funds firms see the return? Where do they think they're achieving the multiples in the legal tech space? That's a difficult question for me to answer because I wouldn't say that I'm necessarily attuned to the PE and venture capital world. I mean, I can tell you where I'm seeing, you know, my ABA journal, I think my November column was like a roundup of all the news and I listed all the funding rounds and the most significant funding rounds and acquisitions. And you're seeing a lot of it in the practice management space. And you're also seeing a lot of it in the contract space, contract management and contract review and analytics. So there's definitely a lot of investment in the contract space. And I would say practice management, whether it's investment or acquisition, there's a lot of activity in both of those spaces in legal tech. And then there's AI. But going back to, I think, your earlier question that I hadn't worked my way around to it, but AI is really like the next frontier of what's going to be happening in legal tech. And there's a lot of interest in AI, but I don't think as much investment because they're still getting over that trust hurdle that we were working on with the cloud in you know 2013 and 14 and 15. They're at that stage of trying to get the products to where the products need to be in terms of actual technology and also uh, the increased receptiveness amongst lawyers. And that, that the receptiveness isn't there necessarily because the trust isn't there of the outcome from those products. What are the types of products you would anticipate coming to market in the AI space and what benefits does it bring to the practice? Well, the ones that I think are most interesting personally are the ones that relate to litigation and all the analytics that you can obtain from companies like Lexis or Westlaw or Bloomberg or Walters Kluwer. They own all this data and Fastcase is also trying to accumulate all the data to create the ability to take that data run AI across it and pull actionable information out of that data or data that can be actionable. So you can make decisions in terms of where do you want to file your federal case? You know, once you're assigned to the judge, what are the right arguments that you want to make to achieve your goal? You know, there's multiple ways to procedurally achieve something. So if it's clear that this judge always denies this particular procedural approach, maybe there's a backdoor procedural approach you can take to accomplish the same thing that they're going to be more friendly towards. So all those analytics that help you make those decisions about and also researching the parties and the experts and, you know, the companies involved in litigation, you know, you can pull all sorts of actionable data using AI. All the data is there. The problem is it takes a person or even just a regular computer too long to sift through it. AI is able to actually pull useful information from it. So that's particularly interesting. But I also know that there's a lot of movements in, um, there's some illegal research, which is interesting. And then there's lots of actionable data that can be used by AI for firms internally in terms of what they're pulling from their own data. And that's what some of the larger companies are doing. Like I know Intap, I cover 
conferences as press. And I've talked to some companies. I know LexisNexis and Intap, if I recall correctly off the top of my head, have been like providing the ability for firms to attach more access to information to all their internal information. So if there's mentions of parties or cases, actual links that go into databases in LexisNexis that makes their document, whatever it is, whether it's a letter, a memo, and makes it a live document where they can actually click through and get that information easily. And the AI is what spots it and creates those links and makes the information in their documents almost like living documents rather than just flat documents. So there's a lot of that capability. And then there's a lot in the practice management space. There's a lot of future applications in terms of billing, streamlining billing, or making the practice more profitable by being able to pull data out that they can use to make better business decisions. So there's really a lot of different ways that AI can be used in the practice of law and in the management of your firm. On the practice side, do you anticipate, I presume you you do, anticipate the need to employ change management techniques to get people to be willing to use the data and use the insights drawn from drawn from these tools. We tend to like to think what we do is magic and, you know, we're, 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 we're special unicorns and we do magical stuff and no one could tell me how to do it better. I mean, I think, I think we've all encountered that trend. Is that going to be a problem when, when you deal with data accumulation and data reporting? Well, a company called Law Geeks conducted a study a couple, I want to say in 2017, and that was the best example of a way that you can get lawyers over that hurdle of trusting the output of AI products. And what they had done was they, Law Geeks is software that will analyze like NDAs and that come in and show you the outlier paragraphs in the NDA and also suggest paragraphs that are missing so that you don't have to do that initial analysis. And then you can make the analytical decisions about what actually you want to negotiate to put into that NDA or remove from it. But the problem is that the same thing happens when lawyers initially did online legal research, right? They don't trust the results. So they run it through the system, get the output, and then go and conduct it themselves, either read the NDA or do the research from the books to see if they come to similar results. And once they've done that a bunch of times, then they'll trust the output of the tool. But so what their study did was they had lawyers read the NDAs, they ran the same NDAs through their software, and they had like law professors that were neutral overseeing the study. And I mean, the outcome was what you would expect, which was that the lawyers took something like two hours to review all the NDAs. It took the software like literally 30 seconds. And the software was more accurate than the lawyers at the end of the day. Um, Like the software was like 95%. I'm making the numbers up a little bit, but the lawyers were like 87%. It was significant enough that, you know, I think that that is enough to convince people to trust the output. Otherwise, you're going to have to have the companies prove that to you ahead of time, whether through presentations or the like, or you're going to have to just do it yourself a bunch of times and be convinced that it works. And so that's going to be the hurdle, right? To ultimately trust that output, just like we now trust the legal research output. We didn't used to when it was online. Uh, We did not used to. Nope, I didn't. (laughs) Back in the day. (laughs) I didn't either. I didn't understand how you could how you could do a, a search on the computer and not not find that magical case that was sitting at the next keynote. Right. So, what excites you most about what's coming up in legal tech as you look out two or three years? Is it the AI piece? I think that it's more than anything else. It's the potential and the acceleration. It's when I first started writing, I was educating lawyers about blogging, then I was educating them about social media, then I was educating them about the cloud. And it's always been like this uphill battle to get them to understand these concepts, you know, stop, take the time to listen, understand, and actually try to use them in their practice. And 
I feel like that uphill battle when it comes to almost all tech, even AI, is sort of over. And then it's just a matter of helping them put the pieces together in terms of what their practices actually need. So there's so much potential and uh, green space ahead of you, just lawyers who aren't using tech. So there's so much opportunity to get them to use tech and the tech's getting better and better. And the process of convincing them isn't as much of an uphill battle as it used to be. So for me, it's more just the idea that the tech's improving, the opportunities are improving and lawyers are more and more receptive. So it's exciting to just see what they end up doing with the tech and how it changes their practices. Let's talk a little bit about my case and a little bit of time we have left. Tell us just a little bit about what the company does and what the market is you serve. Well, my case is law practice management software, and it helps lawyers run the business side of their law firm. So from um, lead intake to creating the case and matter management through time tracking, invoicing, and actually collecting payment by online payments, you know, accepting credit card payments or ACH payments from your clients. So it really is the entire life cycle of a case within a law firm. And we help lawyers manage that, increase profitability and increase efficiency by using the tools in my case that will allow them to do that. So for example, we have a smart time tracker. That's just one example. And what that does is anytime you're working in my case, we have timers that help you capture time, mobile timers, timers on your laptop. And once you capture it, it automatically gets entered as a line item on the appropriate invoice for the appropriate client, but you don't remember to track everything. And so at the end of the day, Smart Time Tracker will tell you everything that you've done in my case that you didn't already bill. So you can just click, you know, go down the list and click on those and just have them automatically added to invoices if they're accurate reflections of time that you failed to track. So it's a way to, you know, and that billable time adds up quickly that you may have missed and forgotten to add to your billable time for the day. So that's just like one way that the sophomore adds this additional element of time tracking and actually capturing billable time and making your firm more profitable. So, you know, there's all sorts of examples of that built into uh, law practice management software, like my case, that helps you achieve those efficiencies and that ultimately increase profitability and make your life easier because you're more productive and you don't miss deadlines because you're using rules-based calendaring so that the deadlines are automatically tracked and they'll change as the court rules change or as the deadlines are changed by the court. So there's all sorts of ways that it makes you a better lawyer, a more efficient lawyer, and a more profitable lawyer. And your market is small to mid-sized firms, sole practitioners, right? That's our sweet spot, correct. But we're increasingly adding features and functionalities that will help my case start to focus more on the mid-sized and larger firm market too. So that's not out of the question for us. Uh, There you go. Well, it is a big market. What are the uh, unique challenges? We we spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about big law. We don't spend a lot of time talking about small firms or sole practitioners. Sort of compare and contrast for us, what are the unique problems and challenges that small firms and small solo practitioners face as compared to big law? Well, in big law, you have employees for every function of your firm. You know, lawyers, when, when we were in law school, we did not learn how to run a law firm. We barely learned how to practice law. And you learn how to think like a lawyer. You certainly didn't learn how to reconcile your billing, how to collect money from clients, how to market your law firm, you know, how to communicate clearly with clients. We weren't taught any of that. So when you're in a larger law firm, you don't have to worry about that as an attorney because you have administrative staff that will take care of all of those issues for you and you don't have to think about it. Small firm attorneys, in order for their firm to be successful, they've got to run the business side of their practice. And they don't have the training. They don't know how to do it. And that's one of the biggest challenges that they face is they spend so much time on the administrative side of their practice that is not billable. 
you know, that that takes away from their ability to actually earn money. And so that's why practice management software addresses a lot of those pain points. It makes it so that they spend less time on that administrative side of their practice and more time representing their clients' interests, doing what they went to law school to do in the first place, help people solve problems and do a good job at that and ultimately make more money because they're a good attorney and provide great representation for their clients. Well, Nikki, thank you very much. We've run out of time. I want to thank you for your time and insights and for our listeners, encourage them to find you in the ABA Journal or Above the Law or your blog. You write and communicate in a lot of different places and and all of it's fascinating. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate your asking me to be a guest on your podcast and it was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.